Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi podcast, where we scour our vinyl collections to bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And you found the internet's finest hour for music ever. So, uh, as always, we like to start with a little bit of trivia. And we're back, Joe. I have a very special uh, trivia for you today. Um, as uh, some of our uh, longtime listeners know, Joe likes to complain about how hard my trivia questions are. So today I created what I'm calling is the easy quiz. So, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> this is, this is just, Every time you say it's easy, it's even harder. <laughs> this, is, this is easy in content and difficulty. So it should be just a, a soft uh, softball, a nice walk in, in the park for Joe. All answers are related to songs, artists, and albums that have easy in the name. All right? We're going to start you off. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Okay. Originally, originally a hit for an amphibian, this song about the challenges of verdancy was also covered by Frank Sinatra, Van Morrison, Diana Ross, and Ray Charles. I think uh, this one, I think I actually might know. You definitely know the song. It's first a hit for a frog. <laughs> Easy as a rainbow connection. It's very, you're, you got the right frog. <laughs> it is, it ain't easy being easy green. Being green. Uh, oh, boy, this fast. is going to be a long quiz. All right, here we go. <clears throat> These Australian fellows have Friday on their mind. Easy Beats? The Easy Beats. Very good. Okay. Burt Bacharach wrote this song, which charted for the Walker Brothers and Dion, War, uh, Dion Warwick. Uh, first, it's Dion Warwick. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> easy Like Sunday Morning? Nope. It is Make It okay. Easy on Yourself. Okay. Okay. All right. Lee Hazelwood wrote on trains with hunger and pain, but he didn't cry with Easy and Me and Who? I don't. Re- I don't remember. Easy and me and some other guy. <laughs> is that is that the name of it? I don't remember. It, the song is called Easy and Me, but the the chorus always finishes with Easy and me and some other guy. Okay. 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 This this one's a, this one's easy. This young dead man from Compton once implored you to give him that nut. <laughs> easy E. Yes. Very good. All right. Easy to be hard was a hit for Three Dog Night. And taken from what scantily clad rock opera? Hair. Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, this one uh, fits very good today since you're wearing the, uh, the uh, Cornhusker shirt. Easy Lucky Free was a single for what legendarily whiny Nebraskan? <laughs> Dick Cavett? <laughs> legendarily whiny. Oh, uh, is it uh, Bright Eyes? It is Bright Eyes. Very good. Okay. All right, both the Commodores and, oddly enough, Faith No More have claimed that they're easy like this time of the week. <laughs> Sunday morning. Very good. All right, two more. This was the final doggone single by the Crickets. It ain't easy? No. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's so easy. So easy. Oh, shoot. It's so, so doggone easy. All right. So doggone easy, yep. And this last one, which if you don't get, uh, we're packing it in. Bob Dylan scribbled some lyrics on a napkin and then gave them to Peter Fonda, birthing a theme to which counterculture film? Easy Rider. That's right. Ballad of Easy Rider. All right. That wasn't too bad. No, I liked it. I liked all, I knew all the songs this time. They were really easy. My quiz is also very easy, easier than yours. I'm going to play five clips. I want you to name the artist, the song, and then at the very end, what is the theme of all of these five tracks. Okay. You, what unites them? Sounds good. All right, here we go. Track one. If I see you struggle, I will not turn my back. I've 
Seen a good man and a bad man Down the same path Track two. I sell your heart to the trunk man, baby, for a buck, for a buck. Someone to board you out of that ditch You're out of luck You're out of luck Ship is sinking The ship is sinking The ship is sinking There's a leak, there's a leak In the boiler room The poor lay Track three God bless me, I To surrender, I just wept and regretted this moment. Oh, but I, I still I've got a few of them for sure. Uh, okay. I'm not positive on the theme, but maybe it'll come to me. Okay. And we're going to play those again at the end of the show, right, with the answers? Yep, absolutely. Very good. All right, I think it is now on to Turntable Talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. All right. I am very excited about this turntable talk. It's something that uh, that I recently read a book about, or someone I recently read a book about, and he's just crazy. So today I'm going to talk about the brilliant enigma that is Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim is uh, most recognizable for being um, a flash-in-the-pan, uh, one-hit wonder phenomenon uh, from the late 60s for his song Tiptoe Through the Tulips. The crazy thing about Tiny Tim is, even though he was most certainly a one-hit wonder and his fame died as quick as it came, he probably knows more about American music than maybe any other pop musician or he did when he was alive. He's a true genius and, and an expert with encyclopedic knowledge of Tin Pan Alley songs and generally music from the 1890s to the 1930s. And so with this knowledge, he he made a lifetime out of performing and was one of the the strangest pop stars ever. And he is known for just one song primarily. He performed countless songs. I mean, tons and tons of different songs, and he knew them all by heart. In fact, uh, at one point he performed 139 songs in one show. But I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that story in a little bit. So he he's definitely um, got kind of a dual nature. He he looked like a hippie, but he was very conservative and he was pro Nixon, pro Vietnam War. He seemed kind of androgynous or maybe effeminate or asexual, but he was sort of a freak. He loved the ladies and maybe maybe some boys too. We'll we'll talk about that too. And like I said, he was known for one song, but just it was infinite base of knowledge for American pop songs. So the book I read uh, was called Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. It was by Justin Martell and Alana McDonald. It's an amazingly detailed biography. It's like 500 pages long. It was, it was probably 300 pages too long, to be honest with you. But it, it did a great job of capturing the craziness of Tiny Tim, but was very passionate about him and very sympathetic. It was uh, clearly written by somebody who is a tiny head, which is the, the name that Tiny Tim fans have that's, given themselves. That's really it? You didn't make that up? No, no, there's there's lots of them out there. I'm not going to recount the whole biography, but let me let me just uh, give you a little bit of, of 
where Tiny Tim came from. He was born in Manhattan in April 12 on April 12, 1932, and he displayed a lot of musical talent early on. At the age of five, he got a vintage wind-up gramophone and a 78 RPM of Beautiful Ohio by some guy named Henry Burr. And apparently he would just sit for hours listening to this record. And by the age of six, he started teaching himself guitar, and he just developed this crazy passion for records, mostly from the real early uh, 1900s all the way through the 1930s. And he'd spend all his free time at the the public libraries reading about the uh, phonograph industry and the recording artist. He would research the sheet music and make copies and take them home and learn them. And he did this from the time he was a, a preteen all the way to the time he died. I mean, he never stopped collecting music or looking for music or learning songs. Um, so he, he played guitar and learned some other instruments, too. At one point, he had an appendix out, and he pretty much stayed. He was a, he was a horrible student. so he, his, own, his own appendix? <laughs> yes, he had his own appendix out. And he pretty much stayed in his room listening to the radio and reading the Bible and learning to play and sing. And so that's, that's kind of how he spent his teenage years. Uh, his parents didn't approve of his musical lifestyle, but that didn't really stop him. He would take these horrible menial jobs, which he he really had, did not fit in with society at all. But he would take these menial jobs and get fired real quick. But he would play on the weekends or nights wherever he could. And he would make up these crazy names. Some of my favorites are uh, Texarkana Tex, Judas K. Foxglove, Vernon Castle, Emmett Swink, uh, Larry Love, the Singing Canary, Sir Timothy Timms, and uh, he'd also play under Derry Dover, and he would play wherever. He'd play gay clubs, he'd play flea circuses, he'd play wherever he could, and often underpaid or not paid at all. Tiny Tim's real name was Herbert Curie, and uh, he took on the name Tiny Tim after he was playing a freak show, and he his manager had him follow a midget act, and so he was six foot one, long, gangly guy. So they started calling him Tiny Tim. To make himself stand out, he grew his hair long, uh, dressed kind of funny, old uh, suits, wore pancake makeup, and he just kind of took out this persona to make him stand out. And eventually, he realized he had this amazing falsetto, which would be his trademark in the club scene. So he hung out in Greenwich Village, and he he hung out with everybody. He he hung out with Bob Dylan quite a bit. Uh, there's stories about Bob Dylan and him sharing fries. He, he once got invited to hang out with Dylan at Big Pink, and there's a video of it that I saw many years ago in a documentary about the band, and it's the band kind of playing, or it's, I think maybe Garth Hudson, he's playing at a piano, and you see kind of Tiny Tibbs' head pop in through the screen door and then pop back out. So, but he was, you know, he hung out uh, with with uh, Bob Dylan quite a bit. They they seem to be pretty big fans of each other. He hung out with Lenny Bruce. He just being as weird as he was with this amazing uh, American music knowledge, this weird falsetto and this weird look. He got quite a bit of attention in Greenwich Village and kind of fit right in with the flower child culture, uh, even though he that was not his political beliefs at all. At some point, he was in a documentary called You Are What You Eat, and he sang a Ron, the Ronette song, Be My Baby, in his falsetto. He also uh, did a rendition of Sunny and Chairs, I Got You, Babe. Um, and both these songs were recorded with the band as his backing band. So this movie was a minor hit. And the movie wasn't much of a hit, but he was a hit in it. And so that led him to get booked on some TV shows. He was booked on the Merv Griffin show, but that didn't do much. But then he was on Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and he made a huge impression. Uh, the whole thing is is them kind of making fun of him. But apparently after the show, they just got a ton of mail about who is that guy. And people hated him, just hated him. But there was so much mail coming in that they said, we need to book him on another show. So he'd do regular appearance on laughing he'd also go on the tonight show so peter peter yarrow peter paul and mary was instrumental in getting uh helping his career he's the one that kind of put him in that movie uh you are what you eat um but that he also helped him get signed to to reprise records so he would make these regular television appearances and finally one time he did uh tiptoe through the tulips which is a remake of a 1929 hit by nick lucas and he kind of blasted off with that song people loved it he didn't actually play ukulele on the recording. I don't know if he wasn't good enough at that point or whatever, but he let somebody else record ukulele, but that or record the ukulele, but he just took off and he was definitely a phenomenon right there. He got Richard Perry to uh, who had produced Captain Beefheart and Harry Nielsen and Carly Simon, Ringo Starr, lots of people. Richard Perry um, produced his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim. 
1968, and it sold more than 200,000 copies. And Richard Perry really helped combine the old-fashioned and kind of crazy Tiny Tim with kind of more modern songs. And it was a giant hit. Tiny Tim Mania took over. He had an advice book. He had board games. He had a troll doll. (laughs) And he was everywhere and getting tons of money for his performances. The Beatles had him record a message for their fan club Christmas album. He was gigantic. He was the biggest star for a very short time. Adding to this uh, fame was his just weird interviews. He would play very kind of coy or polite or prudish person on TV. And he romanticized everybody by calling them Miss and Mister. And he would blow kisses to the audience. And he would talk candidly about his very strange hygiene habits and his dietary needs. He was a a total neat freak. He showered up to six times a day. He was toilet phobic, as he would say, scrubbing his own toilet after every use. And he would have to get hotel rooms if somebody used his toilet. He would have somebody get him a hotel room so he could use that toilet instead, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but uh, he didn't like other people using his toilet. Early on, he said his only diet, the only thing he ate was wheat germ with sunflower seeds, honey, and papaya toothpaste. That was all he would eat. As he aged, um, there's many instances of him ordering ridiculous amounts of room service, like all of it. He'd call room service and say, bring me one of everything. He constantly struggled with weight and diabetes. He one time said he'd rather have his legs cut off as long as he could still drink his beer, which he drank his beer through a straw because of germs. So it comes full circle. Really strange, strange guy. His fame peaked when he married uh, 17-year-old Victoria Budiger, also known as Miss Vicky. He married her on The Tonight Show, starring Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. They had the set decorated with 10,000 tulips, <laughs> and they had been uh, imported from Holland, apparently. There's different opinions about how many people watch this. I've seen anywhere from 35 to 45 million people watch this marriage live on TV, whatever it was. And I've heard things like it's Johnny Carson's most watched show till the last show. It says the most watched thing right behind the moon landing. I don't know what it was, but a ton of people watched this mostly because it was just kind of a train wreck. I don't, I don't know. It just, it seemed real staged and fake, which in a lot of ways it was. The relationship was a real thing, but it was strained from the very beginning. Apparently on the limo ride from the wedding, he told uh, Miss Vicky that he was always going to love other women and she was just going to have to deal with that. They, um, it's kind of a sad, sad situation real, real shortly after they got married. And then there was some discrepancies about how long they waited before they had sex. Some say it was months. Some say it was like seven days, but pretty shortly after they got pregnant and the baby was stillborn. But Tiny Tim got a gravestone that said it on it for whatever reason. Just weird stuff. Eventually, they did have a daughter, which they named Tulip, which is horrible in its own way. Um, and he'd later become estranged to her. Uh, and he'd marry, he'd get divorced, even though he didn't believe in divorces. He'd kind of find a way to rationalize it. And he'd get married again twice, one to Miss Jane and one to Miss Sue. And they were all strange marriages that, in a lot of ways, were loveless. Maybe his last marriage less so, but with Miss Jan, they didn't even live together at any point. It it was just very strange. I can't go into all the detail. He always loved women, especially for being so religious. He would unhealthily obsess over women and give them awards for their beauty, and he would stop whatever he's doing and write and record songs for them, sometimes after he just met them. During his peak, uh, when he was making a ton of money, he hired a sin protector at $100 a week to keep him uh, from attempting to sin with women. He was very, very religious. The book had a lot of writing from his diaries, and he'd always pray for for his sin protector because he was going to have such a hard job. And so there, even though he was very religious and talked about the sanctity of Mary and not having sex before marriage, there's lots of instances of him asking for forgiveness in his diary for sinning with women, whatever that meant. He didn't divorce Miss Vicky for many years because he didn't believe in it. But he, at some point, said he could have a spiritual divorce. At one point, Miss Vicky posed nude in a French magazine, which just set Tiny Tim off. Like, I can't begin to describe how strangely he behaved towards women. He was a very, very, had a lots of, lots of really unusual beliefs about that. It was always like he was trying to justify whatever he needed to justify. So nearly presidential in his thoughts. <laughs> very, very nearly. Another strange thing is he had a problem where if a woman would touch him, he would just kind of ejaculate on himself. And so I read this once in the book, like how a makeup lady was doing his makeup and she kind of touched him on the back of the uh, back of the neck or something. And they talk about that. 
So I'm like, wow, that's a really weird thing to include in the book. But as I keep reading the book, it happened over and over and over and was documented. And I'm like, golly, that is strange. So he earned well over a million dollars in two years and none of it found its way into his pockets. He was always more interested in fame and adoration than he was money. He made horrible contract decisions, which many musicians do, but he would just sign contract after contract and he would record for anybody. And he, a, a big reason why his career got sidetracked other than I don't think it could have been more successful than it was is before his second album came out, he had recorded some songs with a, a small company in New York. And so they put out a record real quick, which was horrible sounding and that kind of sidetracked him. And so he got in a lawsuit with them and it, he just made horrible business decisions that didn't really care about him. He had lots of managers and many of them were connected to the mob. His career just kind of tanked and stayed tank. He'd have these mild resurgences where he'd be notable, not really famous or, or well-regarded. He was always kind of seen as a oddity, but he constantly toured. He always toured. He always played. He played vaudeville shows. He played circus. He played regular stints at Spooky Land Amusement Park, clubs, hotel lobbies, variety shows. He'd play wherever, and he never quit till the day he died. When did he die? He died in 96. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit at the end. A few weird things he did along the way. In 79, he set the world professional nonstop singing record for the mon- longest medley ever. He uh, sang 139 songs in, for two hours and 15 minutes nonstop singing. It's pretty amazing. You can go listen to it on Spotify. It's called the uh, Amazon Luna Park Marathon. And uh, this guy named Martin Sharp, who would be a big supporter of him in his later days, uh, made a movie about it called Streets of Desire. In 87, Tiny Tim was making an appearance at a Wisconsin beer festival. And a director saw him and thought he'd be great in a horror movie. So he did. He starred in a, a B slasher flick called Blood Harvest. And he played a killer clown named uh, Mervo the Magnificent, who likes to giggle and, and cut people's throats. He would constantly record bizarre songs. He'd always have old, weird hits or old, weird songs that were hits, but he'd mix them with novelty of modern hits like he did Highway to Hell and Do You Think I'm Sexy and Great Balls of Fire and People Are Strange, Staying Alive. And he'd mix them with these weird vaudeville and crooner songs that he loved. He made lots of really bad choices about what he would record. Because I I, I love our uh, listening audience, I've made a a little medley of my own. Uh, This is about six or seven songs uh, of Tiny Tim's worst songs. They're bad. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. You may want to skip ahead 15 seconds times, you know, three minutes or whatever it is. But I think if you can make it the whole way through, you can kind of understand where his career was going. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and play all these clips together and then I'll talk about the songs. That's the pizza pie for me. Yum, 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 yum. Come, 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 come. I'm as hungry as can be. Some may think I'm crazy when I tell them. He said you love me tender and handed me a rose. Oh, I saw Mr. Presley tiptoeing through the tulips in my backyard garden late last night. with the herpes. Oh, why did she do that? Last night I sat upon my chair and gave it to the cat. Although I haven't seen one, you all know the thing I mean. And now I'm going to tell you what it is I haven't seen. I've never, 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 Mr. Gasoline Man, please give me some gas. My tank is almost empty, so fill it fast. If you will just fill her up, I promise you this. I'll put a tulip in your hair and blow you a kiss. Let's tiptoe to the gas pond. Fill her up. Give me all you've got till I scream I've had enough. 
I'm a bit sick. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. And he won't be round to spread his Christmas cheer. The reindeer all look blue. They know what he's going through. Santa Claus has got the AIDS this year. So those songs in, in order were Yummy Pizza Pizza, which was later recorded as the Pizza Polka Rap. And then there was I Saw Mr. Presley Tiptoeing Through the Tulips. He was a big uh, proponent of Elvis's Alive movement, whatever that is. Uh, he thought Elvis was alive and he wanted to write a song about how he was alive. Uh, the next song is called She Left Me With Herpes. Enough said. The next one is called I've Never Seen a Straight Banana. And then another Tiptoe song, which he would record over and over, this one was called Tiptoe to the Gas Pumps, and that was recorded during the gas crisis. That was supposed to be his next big breakout hit, but was not so successful. Next song is called Santa Claus Has Got the AIDS This Year. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So as you can imagine, that didn't go over great, (laughs) even with tiny heads. So he went on an interview and tried to justify it by saying he was talking about AIDS, the dietary supplement. So it was about how Santa Claus was trying to lose weight, not about the um, deadly uh, disease. And uh, the last song I played is Girl, which was probably off his best release from the later years. Uh, is The album was called Girl, is recorded with Brave Combo, which is a modern polka band. And we're pretty good. And uh, it's just so creepy, that song. He had recorded that album after he got married to his third wife, uh, right towards the end. But as soon as he got married, he became infatuated with another young girl and so basically recorded this whole album as a tribute to her right after he got married to another woman. He's just he's all over the place with that. He never had a problem being a novelty. He'd always, like I said, go back to the tiptoe thing. He one time did an ad for speakers that said it was like him leaning on speakers and it said these speakers can make anything sound good. So he he had no problem making fun of himself. He was just kind of oblivious in many ways. But he was very smart and he he just had no, as long as he was getting some fame and recognition and being able to play, he loved it. And there's all sorts of strange stories. Camper Van Beethoven was his backing band once. And like I said, he he made that uh, polka polka album with the Brave Combo that was weird covers, but it turned into the Strange Obsession album. His death in in '96 was super tragic, but but kind of perfect in his own way. He'd had lots of health problems, and he was playing a charity event to a, to a mostly empty room, and so he finished uh, tiptoe through the tulips. And while the people were collapsing or people were clapping, he collapsed and died. You know, he died doing what he loved, which was having people clap for him after he played Tiptoe Through the Tulips. I realize as I'm talking in this, I, maybe I made this sound too negative. I don't feel negative towards Tiny Tim at all. I really enjoy a lot of his stuff. I, I remember buying his first record. I talked to the record store guy about him, and the record store guy had met him recently and said he's just the nicest guy, and he knows all music, and he'll talk to you. And he would. He would talk to anybody. He loved his fans. He would do anything for his fans. There's a lot of really great things about Tiny Tim. And some of his music is definitely worth hearing, but I think just he's just such an interesting guy. You can look at him a couple different ways, and there's bad, ugly things, and there's some great things, but he he really is the ultimate one-hit wonder, in my opinion. Would you recommend this book for people to read if they want to know more about him, or would you suggest something shorter? The book was written as this detailed account of his life where I think it would have been much better and more interesting as if it was more of a creative account and, and talked about some of the stories. It was a very honest biography, but it was way too long, and there was too much stuff of him just making a bad decision with this recording contract and recording this song with this single and these people. 
And there's lots of great stories. I tried to touch on some of my favorites, but there's tons of them throughout. I don't know if that would justify spending your time reading a 500-page book. If you love Tiny Tim and, and you are interested in a getting the full account of, of how somebody kind of rises and falls but throughout it all remains kind of kind of tough about it in his own way. It's it's definitely definitely worth reading. It's it's kind of sad too. I mean, he had probably some mental issues. Uh he had weird family relationships, certainly had weird sexual things. The whole component of him being very religious and how he tried to kind of justify that was all very interesting and thought-provoking in its own way, but it was that was kind of few and far between the details of everything in his life. You know, I, lo- I do love Tiny Tim. That I play that first record pretty often. It's definitely worth hearing, and uh, I hope this was interesting turntable talk. It absolutely was. Thank you very much. I didn't know I didn't know anything about the ejaculating upon touch. Yeah. This, so later in life, Howard he he'd go on the Howard Stern show, which gave him a little bit of longevity and being known with a new generation. But you know how Howard Stern would just kind of ask questions like that and be Howard Stern. And so I think he'd talk about, he was very honest. I mean, he would talk about stuff like that with Howard Stern. And there's different times where Howard Stern would talk bad about Jesus and, and Tiny Tim would get mad at him. And, you know, there's lots or Tiny or Howard Stern would talk about his sex life or his premature ejaculation stuff. And Tiny Tim would talk about his, for better or worse, he was a pretty open guy. All right. Thank you. I think we are now ready to move into our song section. First song today is by a band out of Brooklyn called the LeBron Brothers. This song is called Tall Tale, and I will go ahead and play it right now.
That song was again by the LeBron Brothers, and the song was called Tall Tale, and it was from their debut album in 1967, Psychedelic Goes Latin. They're on the label Fania and Kotique. Um, I have a reissue of it uh, that just, ha just has Kotique on it, I think. Uh, they were all, all of them, all, they're five brothers in the band, and they were born in Puerto Rico, raised in Brooklyn, so basically a Brooklyn band, uh, influenced clearly by Boogaloo, if you didn't hear that, Latin influences, and uh, Mo a lot of Motown in there, too. It's a song that I really like. As far as their career goes, it is the only album of theirs that I've ever listened to, though they have 16 albums, and they recorded 1967 on that album to 1999, and they're wow. still active and touring even though not all of them are still alive song that i that i love that my my friend zach piper introduced to me uh many years ago when we were we were out playing in a bar djing in a bar in chicago uh my first song is uh, a song uh, a relatively unknown song by a great artist this song is called uh don't go home with your heart on and it's by mr leonard cohen
All right. That was Leonard Cohen uh, and co-written by Phil Spector. The name of the song is Don't Go Home With Your Heart On. And that was off the album Death of a Ladies Man in 1977 on Warner Brothers. The song was recorded. It says, strange story. Both Phil Spector and Leonard Cohen had kind of hit hard times. Cohen was in a deep depression. His albums weren't doing as well. Phil Spector had just finished recording the rock and roll album with John Lennon, which apparently was, he had just gone nuts. Uh, Spector uh, is a notorious gun nut, and he fired off a pistol in the studio. So apparently John Lennon said, listen, Phil, if you're going to kill me, kill me, but don't, don't fuck with my ears. I need those. For whatever reason, there's different accounts. Most of them involve a lot of alcohol. Phil invited Leonard Cohen to come back to his house, and they were either introduced by a a common friend or Phil Spector had actually sought him out. But either way, they started just getting drunk and basically started this whole terrifying alcoholic-fueled album recording. Leonard Cohen says Phil was constantly armed. There was always guns around and bullets everywhere. and He'd have armed bodyguards and everybody was just drinking and doing drugs. And so this album, Death of a Ladies Man, which was co-written by them, is absolutely one of the weirdest Leonard Cohen records there is, if not the weirdest. There was numerous times where Cohen said that Phil Spector would hold a gun to him. Apparently, Phil Spector kept his house freezing, so Leonard Cohen constantly had to wear a winter coat. He says he kind of withdrew and kind of let Phil Spector take over. And Spector totally mixed the album without Cohen knowing that was going on. So uh, Leonard Cohen kind of goes back and forth on what he he thinks of the album. It's definitely a a polarizing album. I think Leonard Cohen said that his uh, The Punksters, that's how he calls them, and his daughter thinks it's his best album. But he kind of thinks it's a mess. All that to say, it gave us one of the strangest songs ever. Uh, Don't Go Home With Your Heart On. It is the most unfunky funk song ever. It's lyrically strange. It's kind of sexual, but kind of sad. It's a little bit jaunty and arrogant, but there's a lot. It it sounds like two people that don't know what they're doing. Just kind of, let's kind of make this song. So Bob Dylan and Allen Ginsberg happened to show up one night while they were recording. And so Phil Spector basically ordered them to go ahead and sing backup for the song. But then when he mixed it, he mixed them completely down so you can not really make them out at all. You, you kind of feel like you might be able to make them out, but it's not. They're mixed so far down. So Bob Dylan and Alan Ginsberg are singing backup in the song. I think the song kind of speaks for itself. I don't really know what else to say about it. If you're in the mood for a little bit of craziness, go online and uh, research the uh, death of a ladies man as a a foreshadowing for the arrest of the murder of Lana Clarkson uh, by Phil Spector. There's a nice kind of crazy, few crazy theories floating out there. So uh, have fun with that. My next song is I'm kind of uh, continuing in the unfunky groove songs. My next song is a song called P.S. Exclusive. It's by a band called Life Without Buildings.
That song uh, was called PS Exclusive. It was by a, uh, a Scottish band, Life Without Buildings, and it was from their album, Any Other City, which was originally released on Tugboat Records, which was a Rough Trade imprint. I don't know a lot about this band. They're kind of, their sound is kind of math rocky and, and, and post-punk, certainly later than most of the songs I've talked about on, on our podcast, you know, being in the 2000s. You know, the thing that makes it really stand out is Sue Tompkins, who is the singer, and she does that talk singing that's somewhat kind of like The Fall or maybe a little bit like The Wire. And it's 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 kind of both artsy and jubilant and has those weird chants where she can say the same thing over and over, but it kind of changes how it sounds and the dynamic of what it sounds. So that's the opening song, uh, P.S. Exclusive. She repeats the phrase, the right stuff, 44 times. But it never never quite sounds the same. Uh, they never made it big. They broke up after one album, um, and it's a pretty good album. It was never uh, released in the U.S. until Record Store Day a few years ago. They uh, did a reissue of it, and I found it a couple years later, and it's, it's, it's a pretty fun record all the way through. If you like this song, you would like the record. My last song, our last song, is by Michael Nesmith, uh, one of the monkeys. It's called Grand on Wait, so here it goes. sophisticated party where I got a little drunk on gin. And as the headlights cast a glow on, they wrote a hurdy voice inside of me. They said you lost the light, now you're moving through the night, running from the grand ennui, running from the grand ennui. Well, I reached in my pocket and I pulled out the Omega that was never one second Again, that one was called Grand Ennui by Michael Nesmith. It was off of his 1971 album, Nevada Fighter, his fourth album overall, and third in what I kind of consider to be a trilogy, with Magnetic South and Loose Salute being the first two, um, all with the same band, all have a very country rock feel. I really think, we've, we've talked about Gene Clark and Graham Parsons on the show already, but I think it was all three of them, with Michael Michael Nesmith, Gene Clark, and Graham Parsons, who basically created this genre of music, this country rock. Uh, though it had been done, you know, the band and Bob Dylan and other people had done the sound, but they really took it in a direction that it, it had not gone before, and it's been incredibly influential for all kinds of artists ever since. It's a song that I really like. He had the bigger song on that album was called Propinquity. Uh, this one I, I like just as much, if not more, but both are great. The whole album is really good. I think in some of those later Monkey albums, he was actually starting to write some songs, and you could see kind of these moments of, hey, this this guy's a pretty good musician. And then when he, he got big enough where he could kind of set himself free, he did did amazing stuff. Yeah, he, he definitely, I think, we've talked about how Gene Clark is underappreciated. Michael Nesmith, I think, is even more underappreciated. 
All right, I think it's time to go back to the audio trivia round. So I'm going to go ahead and play these songs again. Again, it's five snippets of songs. I want you to name the artist, the title, and then once you've gotten all of those, or as, as many as you can get, tell me what is the unifying theme from all of them. All right, track one. If I see you struggle, I will not turn. Seen a good man and a bad man. Down the same path. Track two. I sell your heart to the jump man, baby, for a buck. For a buck. If you're looking for someone to put you out of that ditch, you're out of luck. Out of luck, ship is sinking. The ship is sinking. The ship is sinking. There's a leak, there's a leak in the boiler room. The poor track three. Let's see. I, I'm pretty f- confident on most of the artists. The first song uh, is Songs of Haya? Yes. All right. I don't know the name of the song. That's the hardest one in all of this. It's The song title is Steve Albini's Blues. Okay. Okay. Do you know the album? Uh, Didn't It Rain? Yes. Okay. There you go. The second song is Tom Waits' God's Away on Business. Yes. From Blood Money. Right. The third song is Nico Case, I Wish I Was the Moon. Yes, from okay. Black, off of Blacklisted. Blacklisted, okay. The fourth song is The Flaming Lips, and I think it's Fight Test. It is Fight Test, from their album Yoshimi. Yoshi Battles the Pink Robots? Yeah, yeah. Okay. whatever it is, yeah. Um, and the fifth song is Wilco. The song that came to mind is Camera, but I don't know if that's right. It is, yep. Okay, totally. good, it's good. It's Camera, off of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Now, the hard part. What's the theme? The, the best I could think of, and I'm not positive about this, does it have something to do with, like, celestial bodies, like stars and moon? It does not. Okay. Well, give me a hint, then. I gave you a hint while we were going through the answers. Okay. So it must be related to the albums? It is. Okay. So let's see. Steve Albini's Blues, Blood Money, Blacklisted, uh, Yoshimi. Oh, they've all got a color in the album title? No, nope. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Nope. Are they all produced in, by Steve Albini? No. <laughs> all right, I don't know. Okay, you are overthinking it. They were all released in 2002. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty simple. You were thinking uh, of the heavens. Yeah, I often do. My head's in the clouds. yeah. yeah. So, uh, good songs. I got most of the songs. Yeah, I gave you really easy songs, and I just thought you would get, I thought you would just kind of figure out the, that it was the same year just based on them. But I mean, I think I um, I did mentally note that they're all from the same era, but I thought of that as more like, oh, these are all songs I listened to when I was, you know, in college or right out of college, you know, right out of college. So yep. I yep. wish I would have thought that way. I was thinking, I was thinking too complex. 
Yeah, you're far too complex. It's hard I think, to turn for, off this for, giant for brain of mine. I know, I know, I can tell. Uh, so everyone, uh, make sure you go out and support uh, your local record stores. I was very, very bummed. Uh, my local record store, my only local record store, is closing. So I'm going to be, I guess, trolling around on Discogs uh, for a while. But uh, oh, man. it's it, it's hard business. So make sure you go out there and support uh, support people who sell music and support people who make music and bring you the music. I know Joe and I both love talking about stuff we get and then we have to decide well maybe i need to get that too so we have a lot of fun with that too but make sure you're supporting people it's it's a hard industry yum 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 that's the pizza pie for me yum 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 come 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 i'm as hungry as can be It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.